baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Last weekend at this time, the government of the United States was shut down because a budget deal, which included a permanent immigration fix for DREAMers, undocumented young adults brought here as children and raised as Americans, was rejected. Confusion from the White House on what bill would get a presidential signature, along with hardliners in the legislature, killed what many thought was a doable agreement. Then late this past week, the White House put forward a framework for immigration reform with a promise of more information to come in the days ahead, but which has already raised some red flags. To help us understand what we know of this new proposal, I'm grateful to be joined by Bill Hing, Professor of Law and Migration Studies at the University of San Francisco and Director of the Immigration and Deportation Defense Clinic. Professor, it's always good to have you. You are our go-to voice, one of them on immigration issues. Tell us about this latest proposal that we're supposed to be hearing more about in the coming days and if you think it's going to remain on the table for long. I do think that the proposal that the White House came out with uh, on Thursday is going to be with us for a while because I firmly believe that it reflects the vision and the outlook on immigration by the president's chief strategist on immigration. And those are most notably Stephen Moore and also chief of staff. John Kelly. And the reason I say that is because, and it's it's easy to lose track of time these days on when something happened, but I, I guess it's uh, almost two weeks ago that the president had a meeting with members of Congress, both parties, and they talked about doing something for dreamers, dreamers for DACA. And he said very forthrightly that he would sign whatever the group came back to him with. And as we now know, a few days later, that group actually did come back to him, uh, and he rejected what they brought back to him. And it's very clear to me that in the interim days that somebody talked with him, very strongly anti-immigrant, uh, it's something that we, we should be concerned with, uh, those of us who care at all about the future of the country and those of us who care about welcoming people from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnic groups. Uh, if, if you care about that, the proposals are something that are anathema to that. What is in this latest proposal exactly? So, of course, the, the, the part that is offered up front is a path to legalization to citizenship, if you will, for approximately 1.8 million dreamers. And that's a big number, and it sounds nice. Uh, and that, that's an approximation of how many young people there are in the country, people that came who were young 
uh, with parents that uh, overstayed visas or came without documentation. And those that 1.8 million are people who grew up here, basically, went to high school here, and, and some many are now working. 800,000 have this DACA uh, employment authorization deal. Uh, and, and so it's a long path to citizenship, as you pointed out, a 10 to 12-year path. And Presumably, what it would entail is first preliminary screening, uh, some temporary kind of permit that would last a few years, and then after a few years, you might get the equivalent of what today is called a green card, uh, lawful permanent resident status. And then after that, waiting another five to six years to actually apply for full citizenship through naturalization. So that presumably is what's being offered. Uh, and Frankly, that is similar to what um, uh, Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, and, and Nancy Pelosi in the House, they've been talking about something like that as well for DREAMers, something that would take many years. But the other three things, the big three that are also in the president's proposal, are these huge steps backwards. One is eliminating family immigration. They call it chain migration because they want the public to think, oh, one immigrant comes and brings 50 other relatives, which is the furthest thing from the truth. The data actually shows that an immigrant, on average, who comes here, brings in maybe one and a half to two relatives to the country. Yeah, there are some exceptions, but most people, they immigrate with themselves and maybe their spouse. And well, and the isn't, rest, isn't yeah. that part of what we require that a new immigrant have family here that will help sponsor them? I mean, that's usually been viewed as a plus in terms of self-reliability and, and support. Abs absolutely. Having a family member here is a huge, what economists would call, that, that's something that, that uh, is worth capital. It's, 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 it's valuable because it's somebody that can help you get your feet on the ground and you don't need public services to do that. That's, that's a very good point. And so, but the proposal is to eliminate family, huge immigration categories. For example, the one that came, that was most shocking to me was eliminating the ability for adults to petition for their parents. No other administration. I've never. I've not. I've been doing this since the 1970s. I've never seen a proposal to eliminate the parents of adult U.S. citizens, and that's being proposed. Somehow, a parent is not considered part of your nuclear family. I don't know where they get that from. Uh, and I, don't, I don't know too many families, American or otherwise, that don't want grandparents involved in their, in their children's <laughs> absolutely, lives. Absolutely, right. And then the other proposals are things that we've seen in the past, eliminating sibling categories. Um, and, uh, and, and, and also somewhat new is eliminating the ability to petition for your children that are adults, that are unmarried that somehow once they reach 21, for some reason, we don't need to have our children with us if they're 21. What's the um, reason being given for for these three big changes? The reason that's being given is that they are not part of the nuclear family as defined by the Trump administration, and that somehow if we allow them in, the parents and the adult children that are unmarried, that that's evidence of chain migration. Um, and what's silly, of course, about that is the parents, they're going to come here. They're usually elderly, 
and they're not going to have other relatives they're going to petition for. And if you bring in your unmarried children, well, they're going to come here and they're going to meet somebody here in the United States. Uh, uh, their, their future partner is going to be somebody who's already here. So that's a head scratcher. So is what's your personal opinion of the, the, the real motivation, though? Is it uh, for the elderly parents that, that uh, it would be a drain on Social Security or Medicare? Is, is that what the hardliners have a problem with? I, I do think that that's uh, uh, one of the concerns is public assistance for elderly. But that was kind of resolved 20 years ago in welfare reform. Immigrants, and that was a piece of legislation that Bill Clinton signed, when immigrants arrive here, they are not eligible for public assistance for at least five years, and then only if they become U.S. citizens. And so the notion of somebody instantly getting public assistance, that's just not true. There's an exception for refugees, but a standard immigrant who comes as a relative, they're not eligible for public assistance for, for many years. Well, as an advocate and as a, a, a legal scholar in, in this uh, area for many years, is this the best deal, do you think, that will come from this? Do you think it's something that should be embraced as a path forward? Do you think it's something that would not benefit the United States in the long run? What's your personal opinion of it? I, I, I don't like it. I, don't, I think it's too big of a price to pay for... Uh, for a legalization program for the Dreamers, for the DACA's. I think that the Dreamers have a special argument because of who they are and, and how they got here and how they are not the ones who had the intent to come here and live here undocumented. It, it was their parents. Now, I actually happen to defend their parents as well because I think they're the original Dreamers. But, but the, these young folks... They have a special argument, and because that they have that special argument, they should be given status without the paying this price of giving up on the immigration system as we know it. And, and other parts of the package that the White House want, in addition to $25 billion for border enforcement and the so-called wall, they're calling it the border system – but that's $25 billion, and they, they also want to eliminate deportation hearings for most people. They're very upset at the backlog in the immigration courts. They're arresting more people than ever, but because of the backlog in the immigration courts, the, the, the number of actual deportations is about the same as it was a year ago. The arrests are up, but the deportations aren't. And so they want to make immigration courts more efficient. And one way is to eliminate the right to a deportation hearing for somebody who is an overstayed visa holder, like somebody who's an overstayed student or overstayed visitor. Under the proposal, those folks would get what's called expedited removal, which is a euphemism for you don't get to have a hearing. You, if you're overstayed, then you're on the next airplane. While we're on the topic of the immigration courts, I was also uh, reading that the Department of Justice is looking at uh, eliminating some of the leeway that immigration judges have case by case, that, that some of the parameters that they can use to extend a stay or uh, hold over another hearing for representation, that a lot of that... Um, bandwidth that they've got 
uh, to use their judicial knowledge and expertise is there's an effort there to reduce that. Right. So immigration judges are administrative hearing officers. They're not a real federal judge. They, they, they work for the agency. They work for the Department of Justice. They're not judges. And so honestly, they don't have a whole lot of leeway to begin with. They can only grant asylum or grant some kind of relief if the law says that a particular type of relief is available. It's very narrow, actually. But one of the things that they have been able to do, as your question points out, is that if they think that time might inform the court more about what's going on. Sometimes they actually do grant continuances. And so that is one of the things that the Department of Justice that oversees all the immigration judges. Jeff Sessions is the boss of all the immigration courts in the countries. He doesn't want judges to even do that, to grant continuances. They want hearings to be resolved within X number of days, like 90 days or 100 days. They want decisions made right away. And so what I'm afraid of is that there's a reference in the White House proposal to more efficiency in the immigration court. And that correlates with, as you say, a memo that was issued last week by the Department of Justice to immigration judges that they better speed things up. I'm, I'm afraid that what that might mean is some is perhaps putting a time limit on how long your hearing can last. And the last time I heard that, I'll be honest with you, was uh, during the Reagan administration when there were a lot of Haitians that were coming into Miami. There was a backlog in the Miami courts of Haitian cases, and they instituted something called the Haitian Efficiency Program of the immigration courts, and judges were expected to handle 18 cases a day. Sometimes they could only had five or 10 minutes to do the hearing. And that's what it's beginning to sound like to me, that they want judges to just hold a hearing that lasts for a few minutes and, and deny relief and go on. And in the Haitian situation back in the, in the 80s, uh, there were 4,000 cases that were heard, and none of them were granted asylum. And a court of appeals actually intervened and stopped that program. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's where we're headed. We're talking about immigration, about actions in the past week regarding the Dreamer deal that did not make it into the budget agreement, and about new information that's coming out about a proposed immigration reform package from the White House. And my guest is Professor Bill Hing, Professor of Law and Migration Studies at the University of San Francisco. He's also the director of the Immigration and Deportation Defense Clinic. I'm Jane McMillan. We were talking about a, a chill uh, in immigration in general, that that being the idea from the administration, but refugees. I think that the administration wants to send a message to potential refugees, and, and that's been true since the Trump uh, candidacy mm -hmm. in terms of sending a message to refugees, especially Syrian and Muslim refugees, that that you're not welcome, uh, but also to uh, migrants that are coming from Central America. Every day, there continues to be young folks and women in particular that are fleeing Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras because of the violence there. It's gang violence, drug violence, and also domestic violence. And 
we're trying to send a message that if you get here, we're going to detain you. We're going to deport you as soon as we can. So don't bother. Explain to us removing protected status from the Salvadorians. We've heard the, the MS-13, the gang, reason used. Uh, but that's not, that's not everybody, obviously. The protected status for these folks who came here as refugees, are they going to be treated any differently than what we're talking about in terms of quick processing and a return? Do they have any different status? Protection? They may have a little bit different status. And so uh, temporary protected status was put in the laws in the 1990s. Uh, that was near the end of the civil wars in Guatemala and El Salvador, uh, and 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 that during that time in Nicaragua, and it was recognized that not all these folks have individual good cases for asylum, but most of the folks were being caught in the crossfire of the civil war, and so the law provided that. When people are caught in those types of situations where there's civil wars or where there's a natural catastrophe, something that's awful that's happened and it's terrible to send people back to those conditions, that we should grant temporary protected status. And over the years, it's been granted to people from El Salvador who entered before the year 2000. It was extended to Haitians. Uh, it exists for people from uh, uh, other parts of the world like Syria, of, of, uh, some, and, and also Somalia over, over the years, places like that. But Trump has announced the elimination of temporary protected status by 18 months from now for El Salvadorans and Haitians also a few months from now. And probably in the next few days, they're going to cancel it for Hondurans as well. The answer to your question, and, and we are talking several hundred thousand people total. Um, the answer to your question is that they technically, they will have a right to a deportation hearing. And those individuals who have lived here for more than 10 years, and they have, most of them, they will be able to apply for something called cancellation of removal. But there's a very, very difficult hardship requirement to satisfy in order to get relief called cancellation. It's so difficult that you virtually need to have a child who's dying of cancer to satisfy the hardship requirements. And so I think it's going to be a very tough road for people who had temporary protected status, but it's being canceled. It's going to be hard for them to be able to stay. What do you say to uh, American citizens who may be on the fence on this issue and say, well, seems like, you know, we, we all need jobs and maybe we should limit the amount of people coming in. Why is immigration important? Why shouldn't we double check uh, and remove people we don't want here? What What does the country lose, really, if we slow this thing down and, and don't let so many people in? What would you say to them? Well, uh, all of that, um, all of those concerns need to be attacked uh, and unpacked. Uh, here, here, let, me, let me answer it very quickly this way. Uh, we should always wonder why people are trying to come here. Uh, we often lose sight of why people arrive and why they're fleeing or why they're migrating. If we understood the violence that was going on in some of these spaces, or if we understood the inequities that are going on in their different countries, the persecution because you might be gay, or the persecution because uh, you're, you're fleeing abuse from your 
partner, that kind of thing. I think we'd be a little bit more understanding. That's one thing. The other thing is that listeners can very easily find the answer to their concern about economic impact. The truth is, if you look, it doesn't take that much to determine that immigrants actually continue to pay more into the tax system than they take out in benefits. We actually benefit, especially undocumented workers who usually are eligible for tax refunds and they don't get it. They're helping to continue to make the Social Security system solvent. Uh, the Social Security Administration admits that, that every year there's, this, there's millions of dollars every year that they cannot account for that were put in, and they've concluded that those are from undocumented workers. And, and I guess the final thing I would say is that, yeah, it is about what values and how, what your vision is. Of, of America. And I cannot convince someone who thinks that we should only be bringing in people from Western Europe or Norway. If that's the way you're looking at it, then I doubt if I can convince you otherwise. But I think that most people are much more open-minded about understanding that we are a nation of immigrants. You, only, you look back in your own family's history and try to find out why the folks come here. And I think many people would be surprised how similar the stories are today as they were for your own grandparents who came. And then I think we would all calm down a little bit. Why does the country need immigrants? Well, it's very clear. The, the, one of the big champions of immigrants is actually the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and, and it's because they understand that it's not just Silicon Valley that we need. Silicon Valley is great, and it helps to bolster the Bay Area economy. But we actually need day-to-day workers as well. It sounds like a cliche and an overstatement that immigrants actually are filling jobs that many Americans don't want. But it's true. If you look around... There are a lot of, of low-wage, low-skilled jobs and other jobs that there aren't enough people here already to take those jobs. And, and so we actually need them for the economy. And I actually think that we need them for kind of the health of the country. Um, we, it, again, it's not just Silicon Valley that, that, that benefits from vibrant energy and ingenuity. It's it's people that are working in all of the different kinds of jobs in small businesses and medium businesses that help our local economies. Uh, I guess on the economy especially, uh, studies show that the parts of the country, the states in the country that have the most immigrants over the last hundred years, they have the most stable economies. You're out in the field. You're not just a professor. Uh, you are out in the field, and your clinic uh, does immigration work. And you're meeting um, our neighbors, our friends, our neighbors, young people, students who are dreamers, uh, some of whom came here under the same auspices uh, as a young child. Maybe they don't have a dreamer status, but they're, they're still here, and they're working, and they're going to school. Uh, many of us have friends who are in this predicament. Uh, our kids have friends in this predicament. What is the human impact that you're seeing of this debate, the tone of it, the threat of deportation? What's, what are these people who are, again, our friends and neighbors and young people going through out there? I've been doing immigrant rights work since 1974. 
I've never seen the level of fear that exists today in the immigrant community as bad. This is the worst I've ever seen it. And believe me, I've gone through raids by the Bush administration. Uh, President Obama was called a deporter-in-chief by some folks. Uh, I've, I've alluded to President Reagan. People are really afraid. This started the day after the election. That Wednesday in November 2016, I got my very first call from a parent at Alvarado Elementary School in San Francisco saying, can you come to our school? There are parents arriving on the playground that are crying, and others are saying that they're afraid to bring their kids to school because they're afraid they're going to be deported today. This Every day when, when people read about somebody being deported, somebody picked up, somebody uh, who Obama had allowed to stay here, but then all of a sudden they're reporting and they get arrested and put on an airplane. That news travels very quickly in the immigrant community. Uh, social media is everywhere. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. The, the, the students and the families that we engage in my students and other immigrant rights advocates in the Bay Area, we, we do these Know Your Rights presentations throughout the Bay Area. Um, it's unprecedented. The fear, the, some are even afraid to come to our presentations. People are afraid to go to their doctor's appointments. People send a neighbor to go to the grocery store. I, I met a woman who needed to go to DMV in Salinas, and she was afraid to go to DMV to renew her license because she was afraid that the 30 miles she was going to drive, she might get stopped. This is not the kind of country that we should be living in with that level of fear. What should current dreamers do in, in this untenable situation? Uh, legally, what should they do? What should, uh, should, should others come forward now to try to get that status? Uh, should they stay in hiding? Right. What should the rest of us do? Well, I'll be, I, I, I think that, um, let me answer it in standard way and a different way, too. The standard answer to that is we need to put pressure, especially on the House of Representatives, to pass immigration reform so that we can help dreamers and eventually their parents as well. Um, it, it really does boil down to the House of Representatives. The Senate, I think, can accomplish something. But Paul Ryan and other Republicans have to understand that this is about human beings. I think that dreamers themselves, um, I, I wish I could say go out and be bold and protest, but I'm not in their shoes. Uh, many of them are worried that they're going to get arrested. Um, and, and I would say that, unfortunately, they have to be a little bit cautious. Uh, but I will say this to big businesses, uh, businesses like Facebook, Apple, Google, uh, they've all spoken out in favor of the DREAM Act. They want legislation passed. But I would encourage them to think about civil disobedience themselves, that uh, if they really believe what they've been saying, that the DACA students and the DREAMers are really needed by their industries and by our entire society, well, they ought to roll up their sleeves, be ready to stand by their words and say, you know what, this is so meaningful. I'm going to continue to hire these students even if their employment expires because that's how much it means to us as a nation. 
Professor Bill Hing, as always, thank you for your time and your expertise. And if people have questions, how do they reach your clinic? It, it's very easy. Um, call the University of San Francisco School of Law, and uh, the number is 415-422-4475, and we'll do our best to help them. Bill Hing is Professor of Law and Migration Studies at the University of San Francisco and Director of the Immigration and Deportation Defense Clinic. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. at 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.